Reducing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Beatrice Magaloni is a professor of international relations and political science at Stanford University, and her work focuses on policing and human rights in some of the poorest places in Central and South America. She's also the 2023 winner of the Stockholm Prize in Criminology. We chat about her work examining community policing in Brazil's notorious favelas. I'm Jerry Ratcliffe and this is Reducing Crime. Millions of people around the world live under the rule of criminal organizations. Beatrice Magaloni has spent years studying poverty, government, policing and community relations in Central and South America, and in particular, Mexico and Brazil. Professor Magaloni is the Graham H. Stewart Professor of International Relations and a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Her work focuses on state repression, police, human rights and violence. She's also founded the Poverty, Violence and Governance Lab within Stanford's Center on Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law. Her first book, Voting for Autocracy, Hegemonic Party Survival and Its Demise in Mexico, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2006 and won the Best Book Award from the Comparative Democratization section of the American Political Science Association. It also won the 2007 Leon Epstein Award. She has a PhD from the Department of Political Science at Duke University, and prior to joining Stanford over 20 years ago, Beatrice was a visiting professor at UCLA and a professor of political science at the Instituto Tecnologico Autonomo de México. And my apologies to Spanish speakers, as I no doubt just butchered the hell out of that. This last summer, she was awarded the Stockholm Prize in Criminology. And as I was there, I snagged the opportunity to chat with her, and in particular about her work with the UPP, Rio de Janeiro's Pacifying Police Units, a more community-focused police unit. Most of our conversation revolves around a key paper she published, and don't worry, I'll put a link to it at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. It describes favelas as being under five types of control. Insurgent rule, bandit rule, symbiotic rule, predatory rule, and split criminal rule, which is mainly referred to in our chat as a contested situation. But don't worry, she explains it all in the conversation. So take a listen. To me, this is my main contribution. This paper, it took so much field work. I mean, what you were describing, so much foot on the ground, so much interacting with officers. We almost went to every single UPP, were there with them in foot patrol. In right. the, It was amazing. And we were very vested, in a way, in the project succeeding. And unfortunately, at the end, it lost credibility and the government really stopped investing in it. So some of the things I was talking about in the Jerry Lee lecture, you were, you were probably thinking, yeah, this makes sense. <laughs> yes, exactly. Depressing, right? Yes, exactly. Even I took it as a personal failure. You know, we were so vested, so excited that things were working. And then when violence started to escalate again and we saw how everything was unraveling, it was personally depressing. So this idealist that you talk about is... I've sympathized with that a lot. <laughs> when we work in these areas, you end up being so embedded in it. Absolutely. That it feels like there's no progress. Because it's hard to then kind of think, let's think back to where we were 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, a, I'm a, always a disappointed idealist. Yes, I now understand that very well. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you know, it's going to be really depressing this next time. <laughs> it can be really depressing. So at the end, I actually decided, okay, what's the best thing I can do? I can write the paper. I thought that was the best contribution we could do. This whole experience of doing field work really brings it home to you, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, just yes. The, you know, and as I was saying in my Jerry Lee lecture, I really do worry that increasingly students just download data sets. I love that the white thing that you put there. An economist tend to do that with no idea. And it's like it's a, it's a line, it's a dot, it's something to model. And it's like somebody got shot to death and lay in the street. Too it's easy to yeah. It's no. just a number. Exactly. Yeah. I had invited for the police a camera paper an economist from Rio. I ended up not collaborating with him. He had never been in a favela. And he was the expert on crime. He was terrified to go up Rosinha. It's a very dangerous favela, right? Well, I've been in the Rosinha. You went I, there? I, yes. Yeah, I went yes. there. It's a whole different world in the favelas. Yes, very different. Yeah. It's strangely organized. Exactly. That's you know, there's electricity, people have satellite television, you can find McDonald's. Absolutely. But it's just there is no recourse to government if things go wrong. You have to go to the drug traffickers. Yeah. Yes. And they rule things as they rule things. They rule things. There's no accountability for them. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that last piece, isn't it? That's yes. that, that last piece, which is however good they are, you can never vote the drug dealers out. Absolutely. And if they are, I don't never how to pronounce tyrannical methods. Tyrannical, that yeah. That's their method, right? So there is no way to control that. So you were born and raised in Mexico City. That's right. What's the path that brought you to be doing this kind of research? I studied law. I won't hold that against you. <laughs> when Mexico was an authoritarian regime. And so I started to get very close to criminal trials and observe all the brutalities that, uh, that happened there and the really injustices, a really medieval, terribly backward authoritarian setting. And I thought that the only way I could really do something about it was stepping out from law, because the lawyers were, in fact, very supportive of the way the system worked. No? Yeah, so what was it like to be studying at the time? I mean, authoritarian regimes don't tolerate a lot of you know, discord and dissent. So I, I remember in one of my classes, it was a class on constitutional law, and there was this Spanish professor teaching constitutional law. And then he started in the constitutional class defending Franco's regime. I really walk out of, right. of, of the, of the yeah. classroom. My sister was next to me, you know, we studied together and then she said, my sister walks out, I also walk out. <laughs> it was interesting. So I felt law was not for me. Right. Uh, I really had to change things. I had this sort of always very rebellious part in myself. So I decided to study political science, step away from the law. But I always retained this interest in abuse of power, human rights, and what really changed is that I acquired new methodologies to be able to study behavior better. I think law doesn't give you that, right? It doesn't stop lawyers having opinions on everything. Of course, exactly. So that was how I started. Just the, the interest on violation of rights and abuse of power. And what you recognized is it's not just that you have the interest. But you also had to develop a skill set to be, to be able to do this work. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Good. I had written in my first book was the title was Is Voting for Autocracy? So I had worked a lot on autocracy and that book gained a lot of recognition within my discipline. Mm -hmm. But then I got tenure and I said I really want to put my research 
to benefit society. That was really my, my goal. I created this lab, the Poverty, Violence and Governance Lab. That was lab. very unscholarly of you. Normally it's just <laughs> producing more journal articles. <laughs> exactly. And I said, I really want to impact this reality, violence. Started working on Mexico, but then I went with some graduate students to Brazil as a faculty leader, and I spent there 15 days doing interviews in Brasilia and then in Rio de Janeiro. And in one of these interviews, I was able to meet the Secretary of Security, who started this reform trying to demilitarize the police in the favelas, and I really got fascinated. Right. I think they had only started with eight, what are called the UPPs. Which translates to... Uh... Pacifying police units. And I went up to Pabon Pagoncino, which is a favela that is very close to where we were staying. And it was really eye-opening. It was walking in a um, territory that six months ago, no one outside from the favela without permission could walk there. Even though you'd grown up in Mexico City, it was still a shock to walk in a favela in Brazil. Yeah, the setting is strikingly specific. I also work, for example, in Mexico, Ecatepec. It's a similar setting, so of course there are settings like that. Sure. But the way this took me is because as I was walking there, I wanted to go interview the commander of that unit, the pacifying police unit, the police officer, Leonardo Nogueira, a black Brazilian officer. And he inspired me so much. Oh, that's great. He really was so committed to the notion of creating a humane police for the poor to stop the violence that has characterized the relationship between police and favelas. And I thought, wow, I really want to understand how does this happen? Is it possible to create this type of police for these settings for the poor? So this wasn't a commander that was just going through the motions. He'd been ordered to do this. He really believed and thought this was the way forward. He really believed. Had he grown up in a favela himself? I don't think he grew up in a favela. There's many officers we knew that grew up in favelas and it does create a difference. I think they are better prepared to operate in those environments. But I think he was an idealist and very committed, very serious, hardworking person. Oh, ex exposure uh, to policing will crush any idealist <laughs> dreams, won't it? <laughs> exactly. Of course, we also met the other types. I'll tell you about them. But tell me, I'm really interested in this guy. What was your sense of what it was like for him? Because the whole ethos of policing in Brazil at the time was very different. Yeah. So he's really being a pioneer and putting himself out there. Yes. He, to me, was the ideal. You know, the ideal pacifying police unit commander. But we met many others who also had very strong commitment to the project. And they really were convinced that it was necessary to stop the violence, that the communities deserved a different type of policing, yeah. and they were all innovating because there was not like a manual of what they could do in these settings. So what I observed in all the different units that we visited and we interviewed the commanders, the police, and also residents, we observed very different strategies in each one. So of there them. was no real plan. There was a general idea, but unfortunately there wasn't a plan. There was not a plan. And the only thing that they did is supposedly they were only going to assign young officers who did not have any experience with the old traditional violent methods. So originally the frontline officers were all young men and women. But what happened gradually, I learned these officers during the free days could work in the regular what are called battalions, yeah. where there is a 
you know, a lot of violence. A very, and, and a, a very different regime and a very different culture. Very different culture of policing. And so they started to really socialize with the regular police mentality. And interestingly, we collected a large survey of around 5,000 officers in the entire corporation. When you ask those officers who were assigned to the community-oriented policing units where they preferred to work, the overwhelming majority said they didn't want to work there. They wanted to work in the regular battalions or even what is called the BOPI. It's a battalion, very small one, training counterinsurgency. Okay. And its symbol is literally a skull with two knives and a revolver. Yeah, they, they wanted to kick indoors and take names, yeah. They were young, so they wanted to do the exciting stuff. Exactly. Yeah. In many areas, they were very well received where violence was very high. The way they are called is Donos do Morro, which means they are the owners of the hill or the rulers, right? Yeah. So we found that in places where the criminal rulers were very violent, then they didn't restrain their men from harming the community or they were constantly fighting, you know, with rival gangs. People lived terrified in these yeah. settings. So police officers, were well received there. This is what I was really fascinated reading about your work. You published an American political science review, a paper that looked at actually how important it is to understand you know, various different aspects of the gangs, the organized crime groups in the favelas, because it's going to affect how successful your policing is. Absolutely. They have different relationships with government, with the state. Yes. Everybody mostly thinks that organized crime groups and gangs are in conflict with the state, but that's not what you found. Police know this territory is different from that. Mm -hmm. As an ex-police officer myself, you know where you are street by street. You have a very good feel for what the vibe is in that neighborhood. So we could sense that from them. You know, they would say, no, Complexo Daleman, that is a really different world from Rosinha, or there is a super different world from Caju. Or, you know, they really described this, but there was no theory or understanding of what was different. Mm -hmm. But we started really to observe these differences and I really got the insight that the relationship of the criminal group with the community and as well with the state was a really important factor in the way the police were going to be received. Yeah, so you've got these two different factors, the relationship with the state or the government or the police. Yes. And the relationship the gang have with the community. So you separated the first one into whether they are confrontational with the state or whether they collude with the state. How does, I mean, confrontation, I think most people would understand. Yes. Tell me about the collusion. The collusion and confrontation, I want to characterize both because the confrontation in the case of Rio is really literally putting bombs in police units. It's literally paying residents to kill police officers. This is Commando Vermelo. And at times they have paralyzed the entire city, putting bombs in buses. So that is really beyond, I think, what we understand as confrontation, right? Yeah, yes. well, I think we have to put in for people some context. It dawned on me because I've been to Rothenia. We're talking about areas of the city that have hundreds of thousands of people, essentially with no government control. Absolutely. So while you can have services, you can have electricity, you can have McDonald's, you can have you know, satellite TV and you have running water, all these kind of things. There is no government control in there. The police patrol the outsides, but rarely venture inside. 
that it's controlled by armed gangs and these have these different relationships and the confrontational one as you say is blowing up police stations i think you said the other day that they've shot down helicopters yes they've shot down helicopters this is just nuts this it's is on a different nuts. layer it's really. on a different we were Level. for example in what is in english is city of god the week after they had bombed that unit and we interviewed with the commander there and he revealed it his mental health problems. Understandably. Understandably. Everybody was really terrified and they were very vulnerable, you know, in those settings, this supposedly community-oriented, more peaceful police. This gang formed in the 70s when they were put in prison next to political prisoners. This was not this a gang that started in Sao Paulo? No, this is, uh, Sao Paulo is the uh, Primero Comando de la Capital. This is the uh, Comando Vermelo. When they came out from this um, prison, they, you know, came out with ideology, with sort of the language of insurgencies. And they implemented those strategies once they came out into the street. In many places, people go into prison and become gang members, but it's surprising to hear they become politically radicalized. In this situation, because of what they did, putting political prisoners next to criminals. Isn't prison great? <laughs> And I visited the prison, because now you can go, it's in Isla Grande, the prison where they were. And literally, the water would come up here. So they up were to your really, neck? Yes. In the cells? In the cells. This is some medieval shit going on here. All this brutality, state brutality, right? Also radicalized uh, so much the criminals. So that's the confrontation. Comando Vermelo emerges with that ideology. And also, with the ideology, we need to treat the population well. We are going to solve the problems. Killings are going to be really sanctioned. So they established this order that was very tyrannical, but they did resolve order. It's called Tribunal do Trafico, which means the Drug Traffickers Tribunal. And so conflicts are taken to the traffickers and they resolve it. How do they resolve it? And they resolve it really violently. I, one of my friends from a favela describes this anecdote. She lives in Complexo di Mare. It's a very big, very violent, where three gangs compete. She sees this, how do you say this in English? A moped? Small motorized? Yes, a dead body on it, and then they were carrying it. And then the friend asks her, why is that person there? And so, you know, they just kill him because Oh, so he was on the back of like a scooter thing. Exactly, like it's, how do you say? Um, with a carriage on the back with of With a carriage, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. He just committed some crime and they just killed him. And then she told me, I just realized how normalized violence for us is living in these settings, right? So she's talking about this and a, a kind of scooter with a thing on the back of it goes past with a body and she doesn't miss a beat. She just continues saying, oh, he just got killed by the gangs. And anyway, moving on. Moving on. Wow. And then she says, wow, I mean, that's how much violence is normalized here. And of course, you, there's no way for the government to really get good statistics on how much violence and how much death there is. That's a very good point. So we got a really amazing source of information. They created this number. It's um, an NGO that works closely with the police. Non-governmental organization. Exactly. Yeah. And they receive citizen reports. People in the favela trust them. And so th there is this number everywhere in every bus and so And then there is the narrative of what they are describing. And is this a way for people to report crime or to report homicides? They report violations from the traffickers, violations from the police, from the militia. So it's, this is anonymous. And so you call, you give the report, and they know that their anonymity is protected. 
Speaking with people on the ground, sometimes they told you we live in fear because we are in between the police and the traffickers. So this number helped us. Mm -hmm. We got their data and the narratives that we were able to read and then process allowed us to understand which gang was in control of the favela and also how they were relating with the state and with the community. So, for example, the question that you ask about collusion. Yeah. There is this other gang that is called Friend of Friends. Oh, there's a website called that somewhere, isn't there? <laughs> but Facebook started that, wasn't it? How drug traffickers meet other drug traffickers. Exactly, we're very friendly <laughs> to each other. So the idea was it's not good for the business to confront the state in this manner. The best is to buy off the police. Right. For example, Rosinha was before in control of Commando Vermelo when just before we were working there, Amigos de los Amigos, um, so friends of friends, got control. And you could see in the citizen reports issues like now the police comes and the traffickers get in the police cars to go and invade other favelas. Oh, so you grief. see this. Police are giving arms to the criminals. A lot of reports of bribes being paid to police. So we could really see where there was more collusion versus more confrontation. And also corroborated by interviews with favela residents in qualitative interviews. And you saw the same thing in the relationship between the traffickers and the community. You saw, again, that confrontational or abusive relationship and then the, the sort of more collusive cooperative arrangement. Yes. For example, the cooperative arrangement is very interesting. We were walking Complexo do Alemán. It's a very large favela complex, I think around 300,000. And it is quite incredible to think you've got places with 300,000 people with no government services or protection at all. It's amazing. And ruled... By no, violent drug gangs. By violent drug gangs. Actually, when the government wanted to put the pacifying police unit there, the army was sent for six months or nine months now, I don't recall. So you could only enter with the army. The state knew that. This is the headquarters of the most powerful gang in Rio. We were there doing field work. The day the armed forces left and the pacifying police units were arriving, it was striking. And then collecting interviews with residents, how they were perceiving this. How did they feel about the military being there? Interestingly, for the interviews that we collected, they felt safer with the military. And then the, when police began, there was a lot of hope that things were going to change. And then soon things started to really not work well there. Two police officers got killed. You know, the top commander, he said, that's when we realized that our police officers are too vulnerable in this terrain because this is the terrain of where they actually give money to residents to kill police officers. So that's when the state started to send this other lead squad to these pacifying units, started to respond with more violence. So it, yes. it had good intentions. It had good intentions. Because those first, yes. I remember you saying those first officers came in with the idea of being peaceful. It was community-oriented policing. They didn't bring machine guns. They were teaching classes like karate to the kids and stuff like that but it, when you can't protect the officers, it doesn't become sustainable. And I, I could see that also. I've analyzed the data and clearly there is killing of an officer and immediately there is very violent response. Which 
probably feels right at the time to the people, the, the officers, but it pushes everybody in the wrong direction. It tends to backfire. And in that territory, that's what I call the insurgent regime. Right. So it's a regime where you have confrontation with the state and the criminals have more legitimacy than the police. Right. The insurgent regime is an area, it's a favela that's controlled by traffickers that are confrontational with the authorities, but they are very much in cooperation. With the community. To some degree. To with, some degree. With, with the community. So they're often seen as a lesser evil. Absolutely. So what sort of things do they do to generate that level of cooperation with the community? Residents would narrate things like, they, for example, if you need gas or if you need money, you go to the traffickers and they would provide it. And it doesn't come with a cost? That's a very good question. Obviously, there are a lot of residents... You owe who, them favors now. Who, exactly. Who feel very reluctant, so that they really try to remain very aloof you know, from them, but they have to follow the rules. But what we hear is like they do provide welfare, they do provide order. So this woman was telling us in this setting, she said, you know, now there are people killing each other. So we used to have order. These things didn't happen. And literally, she said, we need the drug traffickers to be around. The police don't know how to do anything here. But in this setting, what the so-called pacification caused was really people living in the crossfire, a lot of killings of residents, innocent residents. You're not really giving people much option. No. The drug traffickers and and the gangs, they're providing some of the social services at a price that really we would expect in most developed world countries that the government provides. Absolutely. Yeah. If you need those services, if you're not getting from them from the government, which you're not in the favelas, you can get it from the drug gangs. Now that's the insurgent group, but the bandit groups sound like they're the worst for everybody because, at least in terms of the relationship with the state, it's confrontational. So the gangs, the traffickers are in conflict with the state, but they're also abusive towards the community. I mean, how do people survive in the places where you say there's bandit criminal rule? What's that like? Yeah, we, we heard heartbreaking stories there. A lot of dead bodies all the time, fear, people living in fear. And there, the police was really well received. The police was seen as the solution to their violence. We collected large surveys, like around 5,000 residents in different favelas. And here we observed that the police actually had high levels of legitimacy. And we asked, for example, in a question, would you rather be ruled by the criminals or the police? And here they would say, we much prefer the police. And then I want to emphasize that in the whole evaluation of the whole process, around 60% of the communities had this positive outcome. Okay, well, that's good. So when police I mean, officers, the incredibly <laughs> challenging situation, at least there's, <laughs> that feels like the one little bright, bright light in this otherwise gloomy picture. And the whole project lost legitimacy, in part because the gangs were pushed out of the favelas and they started to operate in other areas of the city and violence started to be more visible for the middle class people living outside the favelas. So they started to really... Drive political change that undermine the project. And unfortunately... It's the same because it sounds like it has some success for the people in the favelas. That's what I think is important, our findings in this paper. And when Leonardo Nogueira, the the officer that uh, I started talking about, read our paper, once the whole thing had unraveled, he said, wow, thank you, I'm so happy to read that what we did really worked in so places because at that time the, everybody was saying they didn't work, this doesn't have legitimacy. 
And so I think that that narrative is, is not a good narrative because then you don't understand that there were really some very positive aspects. And then you could understand, okay, where we went wrong, and instead of reverting to the militarized approach, you could really improve, right? Now, when a gang is colluding with the state, but abusive to the community, so beforehand they were confrontational with everybody, the state, you know, your, your bandit gangs are confrontational with the state and confrontational with the community, but when they're colluding with the state, but abusive to the community. You called that out, people are under predatory criminal regimes because when the gangs are being abusive, they can't go to the police because they're colluding with the gang. To me, this is the worst situation. Right. And really, I call the militias. So you're not necessarily in a war zone. When, the, when their gang are shooting the community and the police, it's a war zone. Exactly. But this isn't necessarily a war zone, but there can't be much hope. They are in control of order. But they are also in control of, you want TV, then you have to pay money for me. You want this service, you have to pay. Everything is paying to the militias if you want to survive in that setting. The militias are formed by former police officers and prison guards. During the Bolsonaro re regime, he had a very close relationship with this militia group. So the number of territories that they controlled significantly increased violations of human rights, a lot of extortion happening, and they also have deep connections with politicians. So if you want to get elected, the militia controls the territory, so you have to make deals with the militia. So the militia is deeply embedded in the state, and they are also not benign. You know, some of the residents would tell, you know, we grew up with them. Right. These boys play with our children. So I asked one woman in, in a favela, you know, if police came, would you report the drug trafficker and she said no this grew up with us you know this is play with my children you, Actually, you can find the same thing in in communities in the united states and other right. places no? they don't really want the gangs they don't want the shootings but it's also their nephew or it's their neighbor's kid and they knew them and yeah it, it's very difficult to to figure out those relationships so when police come into these areas with this predatory control where they're colluding with the state but also abusive to the community I mean, can you get police to function in those places if there's already collusion with the gangs? Actually, what happens is the formal police remain outside. They actually cede territory to the militias, so they are the rulers. Um, of all the favelas that, so around 160 favelas were assigned, UPP again is this pacifying police units, only one of them controlled by the militias. So the state really remains, and the police remains absent and they actually cede control completely to the militia so so the penultimate one we haven't talked about is this this is fascinating the symbiotic organizations that are colluding with the state but cooperative with the community I mean it, it doesn't sound ideal but it sounds like the most peaceful as long as you don't step out of line exactly so Rosinha was just before it received a, a UPP NIM was the drug lord there. NIM, N-I-M? N-E-M. N-E-M, okay. Then there was a journalist who wrote um, like a book about him because he was taken to prison after the police arrived there. And in the book he describes the best secrets for being a good drug leader. Oh, I just know everybody's going to go and read NEM's Guide to Being the Best Drug Dealer in South America. Fantastic. So the first uh, secret is alliance with the state, cooperation with the state. 
So he knew that well, and this is the narrative I tell you that, okay, police come give us arms, you know, they give us their cars to go invade other favelas. They give us tips when, you know, the other police, which is the investigative police, wants to do anything. They get all the information, very strong cooperation. The second one, he said, is respectability among the community. The community has to really respect you. And so the third secret is like to do that, you have to really refrain your armed men, you know, all these young men with muscle, not to harm the community. So you have to keep strong control of your, of your organization. I, I kind of almost wish that drug dealers in the United States would read this because it's the second part they're very, well, I mean, the first part I hope they never get engaged in, but the second part they're really, they seem really bad at in many places. I agree. It's very authoritarian, right, the rule. Yeah. But it does make a difference when, you know, you have this goal of buying up support of the community. Well, I mean, when you're in hell, you end up making a deal with the devil, don't you? <laughs> exactly. When first started in Rosinha, this symbiotic regime, we were there before the police arrived, collecting interviews, but the residents already knew that this was going to happen. And I recall very well this interview with this woman, an old woman who said, we, poor people, have been solving our problems for a long time, and we know how to do this. Now they are going to send the police and they are going to mess everything up. And so actually it didn't work well in, in Rosinha. Right. We're doing great. We've covered the insurgents, the bandits, the symbiotic relationship, the predatory. The worst seems to be where, even before you get to worrying about the relationship with the state or relationship with the community, it's contested territory. Absolutely. And that's the one that has the highest levels of violence involved in it. Doesn't that produce a paradox? Because you've got these favelas which are outside of government control. But if you try to impose government control, you run the risk of creating contested spaces. And that pushes the violence up. Absolutely. I mean, you're a political scientist, so I'm going to ask you the policy question. How do you resolve that paradox? It's... Wow, it's a great question. In, in the end, our results demonstrate, I think quite strongly, that in these settings, when you send the police, homicides decrease. The contested areas. Yes. Yeah. Homicides decrease significantly, and also police violence, because police are not intervening in between gang wars, right? So this situation, I think, if you ask me, you know, where should you send these police, is in split orders? Right, because there is con there's contested space and the gangs are fighting over the favela, who's going to have control, yes. In predatory regimes, you know, when, where there is not contestation, but the, the rulers are very predatory. So even though they're colluding with the police, they're still abusing the communities in the predatory ones, yep. And so sending police there is good? I think so, yes. But it's never going to happen because they are so embedded in the state. The the yeah. And then the other one is the bandits, okay. right? Because again, the key is whether the community are suffering. Exactly. Even though the gangs are in conflict with the state, they're also being abusive to the community. To the community. Like a key metric here is how much the community is suffering, is suffering, which has to be the priority decision about whether or not to send police in. And with our interviews with police officers where we presented these results and they started to understand you know, what was happening, one officer you know, told us, you know, listen Beatriz, unfortunately, the state never wanted to, and he literally said this, to stop black people from killing each other. Because in Brazil there is definitely a kind of, there are variations in, in how people are treated by the, the color, the shade of their skin. 
and a lot of the residents of favelas are black uh, Brazilians. So the priority for the state was really more to confront Commando Mermelo. So most of the favelas that were intervened were from this confrontational semi-terrorist uh, organization that threatens those outside the favelas a lot. But police can't do this on their own. The rest of government has to come and fill in the spaces that were, in many cases, like the insurgents or the symbiotic gang involved in various, they were providing social services. Yes. So when you take the gang away or you want to take the gang away, Absolutely. you have to bring government services. It can't just be the police. Absolutely. And Did that happen? At the beginning, there was something called the UPP Social. So that means, yes, they were going to provide social services. And I remember being in one of these favelas, uh, talking with community members, and we were in this um, community space where kids were, you know, playing with computers. And, and then this woman tells us, you know, this is the, uh, the police, but the guy we really want is this UPP Social. He's the one who's going to bring the services. No? So they were excited about that approach. And unfortunately, I think it took two years and then they stopped it. So I remember in one of the presentations uh, I made of my work before the Minister of Security, I told him, you know, the state left the police alone to, to deal with a, such a complex situation. And, th and then if you only send the police, they take all the blame for all what is wrong no? yeah. with the state. So I really also sympathize a lot with the officers, you know, who were there, right? With no support, really no support. So a lot of these UPP units, they are really made of metal. You go in there and there are bullet holes everywhere. The police are really in very difficult settings and they have to be walking in the favelas. Residents are very hostile toward them. They throw urine, water. They were put in a very difficult situation and the, their relationship ended up been very toxic. But again, I want to emphasize that in many territories it did work. So work like you know, Leonardo Nogueira's should be really recognized. And actually, because he was such a good commander, he was sent to, uh, I think, four or five different UBP missions. He, he knew his job. We shouldn't be doing that. We're, we're what, rewarding people who've got skills and with meritorious promotion. That's disgraceful. We don't do that in policing. Disgraceful. <laughs> he got the worst. He ended up actually leaving the UPP. I think uh, there was disappointment by those officers who really believed in this. Yeah, maintaining and sustaining good work is incredibly challenging. That's, that's what I learned. Even in the developed world countries, but when you're an emerging country, it's even harder. I mean, I'm sure you came into thinking about you know, Mexican police as well, but we've mainly been talking about your, your paper and your work in Brazil. I'm sure you started with a perception of the Brazilian police. Did that change by working with them? Absolutely. You know, I, like every Latin American, you see the police and all you do is fear and distrust, right? Because it's an institution that actually works very poorly in, in our countries. And then after being so embedded with them, also developing friendships, you know, I mean, those who really... Yeah, I understand. Yes. I mean, I, people say, oh, you're just pro-policing. No, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-good policing. Good policing. Even Vanessa Mello, who did all this work with me underground, my Brazilian student and co-author, we would joke, yeah, I could become commander, you know, <laughs> because there was so much exposure to, to, you know, how they spoke, what the solutions they were trying to find. But I, I must also mention that there is the, the dark side. We collected this focus group in what is called the Killer Battalion in, in Rio, 
We spent four hours talking with them. Interestingly, they were drinking beer during wartime, right? And so they have lunch in the battalion. I'm just going to say I've got a shocked face. I haven't really got a shocked face. <laughs> but very open to us. It was an incredibly open and sincere conversation. And they were very violent officers used to, you know, just being in battle, literally, it's battle. And you can see some of the like images. PTSD almost. Oh yeah. my God. And then at the end of the interview with these young officers, I asked them, you know, if, if you have this choice to arrest or to kill, what do you do? He immediately goes like this and says, I kill. And then he explains why, you know, and he says, it takes too much time for me to go to the delegacia to, you know, just all the paperwork. It's not worth it. And then he described, you know, maybe next week I'll see that criminal out in the street. The justice system, he says, doesn't work, but that he just didn't hesitate and say, I kill. It was like an hour of driving back to where we were staying. I just couldn't talk. I stayed the weekend alone in Rio. I was saying like, what am I doing here? It was so heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And obviously, so we have to acknowledge that that part of policing and the culture is Still there. Yeah. And what a, what a juxtaposition between these inspirational, you know, dynamic, thoughtful police officers and the very traditional role. Absolutely. What an amazing experience. It was life-changing, really. You, well, it was life-changing. I, I think people understand why you absolutely thoroughly deserve the Stockholm Prize in Criminology this year. Well, for listeners, I'm going to put a link to the paper that we've been talking about, which was published in American Political Science Review with you and your, your co-authors. Um, I know you've been really busy with lots of media for sitting down with me. Thanks ever so much, Beatrice. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. And congratulations on your award. Thank you very much. That was episode 67 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Stockholm, Sweden in June 2023. The link I mentioned to Beatrice's paper is at reducingcrime.com slash podcast, where you can also find transcripts of this and every episode. To learn about new episodes, look out for tweets from at underscore reducing crime or at Jerry underscore Ratcliffe, or simply subscribe at Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, or wherever you're listening. If you teach, you can DM me for Excel spreadsheets with multiple choice questions for every episode. Be safe and best of luck. Mm -hmm.